What's up, everyone? Welcome to the State of the Universe. This episode features Dr. Sam Sternberg, and Sam is a name I wish I had when I was a kid. When I was a kid, there were three names I wish I had. I hated Brendan for some reason when I was like six to ten. I wanted to be named Zach, Julian, or Sam, and I don't really know why. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is Sam Sternberg is an assistant professor at Columbia University and the principal investigator of the Sternberg Lab. He is also the co-author of A Crack in Creation, which is essentially the book on CRISPR if you want to understand it at, at a base level, right? If you want to understand it at a fundamental level, at a biologist level, that's probably not the book. But that is the book for the, the general public to have to understand what CRISPR is, what it can do, what it can't do. And that's what this conversation is. This conversation is me talking to Sam, trying to be as stupid as possible so that I can get, and maybe I wasn't trying, maybe I just am. That's not the point either. I was trying to get at CRISPR in the most fundamental light so that everyone listening can understand it. And so the first half of our conversation is essentially that. It's exploring CRISPR, what it is, what can it do, how do we use it? In the second half is us talking more about applications of CRISPR and bioethics. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. This is the State of the Universe with your host, Brendan Drackler. Four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Sam Sternberg visiting us today. Sam, how are you? Doing well, Brendan. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Let, let me tell you something before we start. This is completely off topic, but when I was like seven or eight, for some reason, the name Sam was so appealing to me that when I I wanted to change my name to Sam when I got older, I I hated the name Brendan and the name Sam just really stuck out to me. That is an interesting little factoid. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully a compliment as well. So anyway, moving on. That's not important. I have a question for you, Sam. What is CRISPR? I hear so much about it. I see it in the news all the time. When I'm looking for articles that are associated with my research in astrophysics, I constantly see stuff referring to CRISPR. So so can you give me a breakdown? Like I'm five years old. What is CRISPR? Like you're five years old. Um, maybe a little older. Maybe like seven or eight. Seven or eight. Well, there's two sides to CRISPR. One is CRISPR as it exists in nature. And we can talk about that. That has to do with the world of bacteria and viruses. But the way you're probably reading about in the news is in the context of being able to rewrite DNA. So I'm sure you know DNA is often called the code of life. It's basically the instructions of the cell, of the organism that tell us how we become who we are, how we behave, how we look, how we think, how we feel. And with CRISPR, we have a new way to kind of change DNA, change the letters of DNA to think about addressing disease, addressing different um, traits of things that we eat, um, studying disease, thinking about why a butterfly has different colorations on its wings or why um, worms live longer than other animals. We can really think about addressing any questions in biology using this new power to rewrite genetic code. Okay, so if fundamentally, right, this is what I know from biology. This, this is the extent of my knowledge. Humans have chromosomes, right? We get we get some from our, our mother, we get some from our father. I think we get 23 from each. That's my understanding. That's correct. Yep. Okay. Now, inside of those chromosomes is, is 
DNA, right? Long strands of DNA. Is mm -hmm. it, am, am I right so far? Okay. And those DNA molecules, are they molecules? Can I they are them? molecules. Okay. Yes, you're those, right. Those DNA molecules sort of determine the sorts of traits we have as human beings, right? That's right. Everything from, you know, your predisposition to disease. Um, you know, there's always the, the balance between what's often called in the, in the lay media nature versus nurture. So DNA doesn't dictate everything. Your DNA is not going to predict the next words that come out of your mouth. But in terms of how much facial hair you can grow or how quickly you'll go bald or um, the facial structure that you were born with, um, how tall you're going to be, those are largely determined by the genes that you inherited from mom and dad. I see. And and my mom, I think, gave me a very egg-shaped head, and I'm not super happy <laughs> about that. But nevertheless, I walk around and, and I flaunt it every day. So, but, so every cell in the, in the human body carries inside of it the code, right? The genome. Is that true? With, with some minor exceptions, certain blood cells don't actually have DNA inside them. But for the most part, every other cell in your body has the same genetic instructions, all of which can be dated back to when your current um, form was just a single fertilized egg. That's when mom and dad's DNA came together inside one cell. And over the course of nine months in your mom's womb to being born to developing into a mature adult, every single cell that, um, that uh, divided so that you could grow into the, the adult that you are now all inherited the same genetic code from that single fertilized egg cell on the day of conception. I see. And, and I'm, I'm going to quickly run out of, of facts about biology here. But inside the DNA, right, we have, we have uh, molecules that are, can I call molecules inside the DNA as well? The ATCG? So those would be kind of what well, we the technical term of those are nucleotides, nucleotides. or bases. Okay. Um, usually the molecule would be like um, the single, like those are components of the longer chain, which is the DNA molecule. So those are the bases or the letters or the nucleotides. Any of those work. Okay. So these nucleotides, right? You have an A and a T, and those typically bind together, and you have C and a G, and those bind together. And they mm -hmm. bind together, together, together in long strands in this double helix thing that everyone has seen. Mm -hmm. And you get these incredibly long strands of nucleotides bonded together. And that's what forms the DNA, right? Now, how many, yeah. if you could like, I remember being in like seventh grade biology and the teacher would say, you know, if you had to, if you wrote down every letter in the, in the human genome, the paper could reach the moon or so, something like that, right? Um how many pieces of the human genome is there? So, so how many sort of um, nucleotide bonds is there in that strand? Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. Um, I wish I had kind of a a running memory of all those kinds of analogies because I do find them very helpful. So, I the one that I've used on the radio before is actually I think. If you printed all the letters from our genome, you would need about 700 dictionaries, big old fat Webster dictionaries to include all of that. So that just gives you a rough sense of scale. Um, it's definitely true that if you, you know, DNA, it gets packaged inside of a single cell that you can't even see with your naked eye. But if you took the DNA from that one cell and stretched it out into one long string, that would stretch multiple meters long. Even and all that is being compressed and condensed and packaged into one single cell that we can't even see with the naked eye. 
And then I think, yeah, if you, if you printed the letters of DNA and stretched them out end to end, you know, I don't know, we could do a rough back of the envelope calculation, but probably to the moon and back, something like that. But we're talking 3 billion letters on all the chromosomes from mom, 3 billion more letters on all the chromosomes you got from dad. So altogether, it's about 6.4, give or take, billion letters of DNA. And that has to all be packaged in a cell. And then, of course, um, the right genes have to be expressed or turned into proteins at the right time so that your muscle cells are different from your heart cells or different from your, your skin cells, your blood cells. You know, the, the kind of amazing thing about the way organisms can use genetic code is that even though all of your cells have the same instructions, they can be interpreted or expressed in a multitude of different ways. And that leads to the plethora of different tissue types and cell types in the body. And that's true for, for humans. But of course, all the other life forms that we see on our planet are also using those same four building blocks, the nucleotides, but the exact size, sequence, expression levels, those can make you a human or a bacterium or a piece of grass. I mean, that's, that's the kind of amazing thing about nature. Yeah, this is what I was trying to get to. I'm, I'm glad that we, 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 this worked out the way I wanted it to. So 3 billion sort of letters in the sequence per chromosome, right? We can, we can round per, off per, to that. Per 23 chromosomes. Per 23. Okay. So a mutation, right, based off of my understanding, is literally just one of those letters being the wrong letter. That is absolutely right. So you have a so if you have a mutation, I don't know some disease. I I am not a, enough of a biologist to be able to rattle them off to you. Actually, I'm not a biologist at all. So you have some disease, and and that mutation could literally just be one of those letters in the strand of three billion that isn't right. That is correct. In fact, the one that is one of the more common rare genetic diseases, sickle cell, is just a single nucleotide change in the gene called beta hemoglobin, which makes that molecule on blood cells that carry oxygen around. A single mutation in both copies of the gene you got from mom and dad, and that will lead to a much lower life expectancy and all kinds of medical problems. Okay, and so when we talk about CRISPR, right, we're talking about a tool, and, and most of this information, interestingly, Sam, comes from, from the, the book that you co-wrote that I've been trying to to read through in my in my spare time. So so good job on on teaching me that already. But so CRISPR gives you the ability to somehow delve into that genome, delve into to the genome, find the thing that isn't the right letter, if you will, and flip it, switch it somehow and try to change what is ordinarily a mutation into something that can operate normally again that is correct um and you know it sounds well it sounds both easy and hard i mean you can imagine if we were dealing with three billion lines of a word processing document that would take up a pretty massive amount of memory on a computer but no one would doubt that you couldn't find a way to type in a search term and kind of do a find and replace where you type in the letters that you want to change and we can program a computer to hunt through a simple document of, you know, 
A's, B's, C's, D's, E's, you know, the letters in the alphabet and find that and replace it. But, you know, it's much harder when you're doing this in a living cell that is microscopic. The letters aren't laid out in this kind of nice pattern the way that you would have on a word processing document. So that's that's the idea with CRISPR. That was the way that that everyone hoped it was going to work. And it's it's mostly there. I mean, we'll get into probably some of the details about how well does it work now and what are some of the challenges that are still ongoing. But the, the core promise of gene editing is to be able to do exactly that kind of software manipulation with that type of precision inside of a cell. Yeah, I, I would like to go back to something you said and, and, and sort of talk about it. You said it sounds easy and hard. And I will say that it's it's funny because it sounds so incredibly hard to me to actually be able to do that. But at the same time, in my mind's eye, the way I picture it is you have a microscope and a really small set of tweezers and you just reach in there and pull the thing out that that's no good. And you put, so that's, it's funny because it sounds so hard and it's interesting because, you know, I, I, in my education, you know, I learned quantum physics, I learned atomic physics, I learned about the things even smaller than DNA. And for some reason, my brain can grasp that much easier than it can grasp Mm. flipping one switch out of 3 billion at the microscopic level. And we should, I should clarify, I mean, I'm sure all of the listeners will be aware, but, you know, DNA is far too small that you could ever think about physically manipulating it with a pair of tweezers, like you just said. Right. Um, there are, I mean, there's a lot of interesting developments in being able to image DNA at the single molecule level, but in terms of manipulating it with, like, physical objects, that's well beyond the realm of what will ever be possible. So, really, we need to harness other biological molecules either ones that scientists engineer or in the case of CRISPR, ones that we can actually harness that have already been evolved over billions of years of evolution. And I think that's what's kind of cool about the, the origins of the CRISPR technology that rather than, you know, having hundreds of scientists toiling away in the lab thinking, how can we make a molecule do this? We actually can find it in nature and of course make some tweaks as you know, tool developers, but really we're utilizing something that that nature has already solved for us. Right. So, how was this found in nature? How was something like this even even found in the first place? So, for that, we got to go um, into a very different topic area, which is the world of microbes. Um, and, and when I give talks, I actually always try to make sure that that audience members kind of distinguish between what I brought up at the very beginning, which is CRISPR technology, which is the use of CRISPR for all the things we've been talking about, about changing letters of DNA in human cells, or it could be plant cells, animal cells. But for the origins of CRISPR, we're going to go into nature where it wasn't developed by any scientists. It was actually evolved by bacteria. And so, um, You know, this story kind of starts in the late 90s when the first what we now call CRISPR was discovered by a Japanese group who were um, sequencing the genome or the genetic code of a bacterium, E. coli, which, you know, many people will be familiar with because it can be pathogenic in certain food infections. But actually, it's a commensal bacterium that populates our gut. Um, It also turns out to be one of the more useful laboratory model organisms. Um, it kind of is the major workhorse in labs like my own, where we use engineered strains of E. coli for cloning, for expressing recombinant proteins. 
And so this Japanese group was studying bacteria, they were studying E. coli, and they found this bizarre set of repeating sequences that kind of looked really strange and unlike anything that had really been observed before. That wasn't even the point of their study, but they published a paper in 1987 in a journal article that I think few people would ever have read again, if not for what that turned into 30 years later. Um, and I'm good. It's a little bit of a long-winded explanation, so feel free to interrupt me if no, you no, want to. No, that's fine. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, so, I'm yeah, okay. So that was 1987. By about 2000, um, even stranger was the now growing awareness that these repeating sequences weren't an oddity found just in E. coli, but in fact, half of all bacteria whose DNA was being analyzed had the same kinds of repeating sequences. And so it was really clear that these are doing something important in bacteria. No one had a clue what until the first hypotheses came out in 2005 that it had to do with viruses. Now, we all think about maybe viruses. We think of HIV. We think of herpes. We think of um, human papillomavirus, you know, or just the common cold, which is uh, due to a virus. But it turns out that the far more common viruses on our planet are bacteria-specific. Bacterial viruses, they're also referred to in the field as bacteriophages, where phage is a Greek term meaning to eat. And so these viruses can infect bacteria. They are extremely effective at killing bacteria. And so over the course of bacterial evolution, there's been the development of a wide range of different immune systems to combat that threat. So just like we have antibodies, we have immune cells, bacteria have their own ways of destroying viruses during infection. And in 2005, researchers saw that actually CRISPRs, these regions of genetic code in bacteria, had snippets of DNA from viruses embedded within, within them. So basically, bacteria have viral DNA in their own genetic code. Fast forward to 2007, and a yogurt company proved that those little snippets of viral DNA allow bacteria to recognize viruses during infection and destroy that viral DNA and survive the infection. That was a really long talk. Please now let me get a bit of breather, and please ask me any questions if that was confusing. No, no, no. It, 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 was, it was quite clear. Um, so is the reason, do you think, that bacteria have this ability that, that humans don't really have? I mean, we have antibodies, but we don't have it embedded in our DNA like this, I don't think. Uh, do you think the reason that is, is because bacteria have just been around so much longer and have been subjected to evolution for so much longer? That's a very interesting um, evolutionary biology question. So I, I don't think we can just explain it by bacteria being around longer, because there are countless other genes that we share with bacteria and because you know the current model for the evolutionary path from bacteria to eukaryotes cells like human cells that have a nucleus and other organelles is that bacteria ended up um, becoming parasitized or parasitizing other host cells that led to things like mitochondria and so that was the part of the evolution of cells in higher organisms that we now call eukaryotes. And so many pathways in bacteria have been um, inherited 
by higher organisms like humans. So it's very possible that CRISPR could have actually been inherited just like many other features of the biological pathways that we still carry from bacteria. So why CRISPR didn't make that jump from bacteria into eukarya, that's an interesting question. We have other defense systems that can recognize pathogenic DNA or RNA as it invades a cell, but none that use CRISPR. So that's um, kind of an interesting question that I don't have an answer to, but it's it you know it's somewhat fortuitous maybe because now we can use it and it acts completely orthogonally, so you can actually deliver CRISPR in the technology arm of CRISPR and not have to worry about it cross-reacting with anything else in eukaryotic cells because it's completely foreign to, to eukaryotes. Okay. I think I'm beginning to, to, to get a, a good grasp of this. I actually think, I should mention quick, that my best interviews are interviews with people that study something so vastly different than what I study because I can be dumb and get away with it. When, oh, yeah. When I, when I interview someone who's like in my field, a, a renowned member of my field, I get this like pressure to be smart. And I think that because of that, a lot of questions that maybe the audience have get sort of skipped over. Uh, and so with you, I, I can feel free to be, to be as, you know, s silly as I want because I, I, I fundamentally don't know a lot of this stuff. So when we take this, this sort of virus correcting strain of DNA, this, this length of DNA that can correct itself, correct viruses within, within its own genome. Uh, sorry if I'm mutilating the well, words. Well, let me, here. let me, let, let me actually cut in real quick because okay. there's an important, an important distinction and I'll try to keep it very basic, but okay. so CRISPR in bacteria, its sole function is to destroy viral DNA. So that's, that's kind of like the big difference between CRISPR in nature in bacteria and CRISPR as a tool in other cell types. In bacteria, the way that CRISPR is being used is to recognize and ultimately destroy viral DNA because as an immune system, you don't want to correct the viral DNA. You want to just chop it into bits. Okay. And so you know how that exactly works is, first of all, still unknown in some parts, but also we don't have to get into the complexities, but basically you chop it and then ultimately the viral DNA gets further degraded. But actually using this as a technology in other cell types is similar in the first leg of how CRISPR works, but then the second leg is relying on natural ways that our cells can repair DNA that's initially cut into two pieces by CRISPR. And so, you know, I have this graphic I always show where in bacteria, the most common CRISPR tool we use today, which is called Cas9, it cuts DNA, and that cut in the viral genetic code ultimately triggers the rest of the viral DNA being further degraded until the infection is, is over. But in a human cell, you still cut the DNA with Cas9, but the downstream effects are very different because that now triggers a repair process that bacteria don't have the components to mediate. In human cells, we have other things in the cell that can take a broken piece of DNA and repair it, and specifically repair it by pasting in other sequences of DNA that the researcher can provide. And so that's how we can get to the point of programming CRISPR to cut at the site of a mutation 
while also supplementing or providing a repair template that the cells will use to glue up that broken site of DNA with a new sequence that will eliminate the mutation. Okay, so in, in, in a patient, say, with sickle cell anemia or something, you can provide them with this tool to, to hack up their own DNA, but the body's natural inclination is to repair broken DNA. So exactly. You, so you then provide the body with a new template, something to repair it with, and that something will hopefully fix the sickle cell anemia. Absolutely. So that's why, you know, if we're digging a little deeper here then, you know, my analogy earlier of the find and replace function, um, it's actually a little bit of a of a, a misleading analogy because the CRISPR isn't actually doing the replacing. CRISPR is doing the finding, but the replacing is kind of downstream of that. But it just so happens that in the kind of 20-year journey to develop gene editing technologies, the limitation has been how to introduce that first cut that triggers all of the repair to even happen. Because we've known for many years, and actually I have a colleague here in my department, Rodney Rothstein, he discovered with a couple other scientists that breaks in DNA are the triggers for DNA repair. And so if you can break a chromosome at the site of a mutation, that can vastly increase the frequency with which cells now repair that broken DNA using repair templates. So actually using CRISPR for gene editing in one of the most common uses combines the, the delivery of CRISPR and the delivery of that synthetic repair template that you want the cells to use to glue up that damage, thereby replacing the mutation with the healthy sequence. Okay, so this is actually a really important distinction for me as someone who, who doesn't know much about this, and I think probably for a lot of the audience who also doesn't know much about this, CRISPR-Cas9 is is just a tool not to be some magical, you know, mechanic that goes into your DNA and fixes everything. It's a it's a tool we use to just sort of chop up DNA and tell the body that there's a problem. And the body the, handles it from there. And we 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 give it help along the way by giving it, you know, supplemental DNA. That's pretty much spot on. I'll just make two caveats. And, and the problem with biology and with any technology is there's a bazillion caveats, but let me just make two. Okay. So you said chop up and that's absolutely right. But I think it's important to stress that, you know, chopping up makes it sound like it's kind of doing a lot of damage, but the, the, the real power of CRISPR that it's exquisitely precise. So we're talking about maybe a snip and a snip at just one site. So it's not kind of this blunt instrument that's just breaking DNA all over the place, we can program it to happen only in a precise region of those 3 billion letters. And that, so site, just, that site corresponds to the exact site of the mutation? That's what we would program it to do. Okay. And we can talk about how that's possible, but that's just one a, a kind of semantics issue. And then the other thing I wanted to stress is that the kind of um, simplest use of Cas9 is exactly the way you described it. But what's been really exciting in the field is that there have been a lot of um, in, there's been a lot of innovation in the last five years on harnessing Cas9 in, in new ways, and so it turns out that now there is a kind of advanced mechanical form of Cas9, if you will, that can directly repair mutation. Um, I don't think we want to go into the details, but 
maybe the point is that, you know, I think the emerging reality is that Cas9 is not a single tool. I often have a slide I show uh, of a Swiss Army knife where Cas9 and CRISPR is kind of this central platform or set of tools and the exact functionality you want to use, whether it's the, the big knife or the small knife or the little clippers or the little toothpick on the end, that actually depends on exactly how you design it because we can now utilize Cas9 in a variety of different ways depending on how it's delivered, what else it's combined with. And so it's both just the thing that cuts, but increasingly we can actually access a lot of other downstream uses by, by using it in different ways. I see. Now, one thing that you keep saying that, that I want to sort of get into next is you keep saying program. We can program mm. this. So I'm a I work in computational physics, and so I'm constantly writing code to do things that I wanted to do. And by the way, if you want to have someone else sound dumb, not that you sound dumb, but if you want me to sound dumb, I would love to ask you about that, but I guess that'll have to be another conversation. Yeah, sure. Uh, we, we will. I'll be happy to have you back on, and and we can make both of us sound dumb at the same time. Uh, <laughs> there you go. I'm happy about that. So, anyway, so so when you say program, right? We already know that the 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 Brendan Drackler tweezer hypothesis is not correct. So, how do you program this? What 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 does program even mean? Because I can't picture anything but like computer code. That's a great question. Um... And that is actually what makes, that's exactly what brings us to the breakthrough with CRISPR over previous technologies. So, you know, people that hear now about gene editing might mistakenly assume that CRISPR is what has made gene editing possible. But there's been a lot of work on developing gene editing tools. And in fact, the first clinical trials that use gene editing for disease in patients don't use anything having to do with CRISPR. They use older technologies. But there's a big distinction between how all the gene editing tools before CRISPR worked and how CRISPR works. And that has to do with the programmability. And that comes back to kind of thinking about the major molecules in the cell. We have DNA. We talked about that. That's got A's, T's, G's, and C's. And as you pointed out, the A's typically form pairs with T's, G's with C's, and that's what holds kind of the two strands of the double helix together. Then you've got proteins. Proteins are the product of genes. We're talking beta hemoglobin, insulin, um, gluten. These are all proteins. And then we've got RNA. And RNA is this kind of magical molecule that is actually what I spent my PhD interested in and studying, and that's what ultimately brought me to Jennifer Dowden's lab at Berkeley. So RNA is kind of often called in the, uh, colloquially as DNA's molecular cousin. It has similar letters as the acronym DNA because instead of being deoxyribonucleic acid, hence DNA, you lose the deoxy and it's just ribonucleic acid or RNA. And what's really special about RNA is that it's made up of virtually the same letters or nucleotides as DNA. You've still got the A, G, and the C, and the T now just becomes a U, but chemically they look almost exactly the same. And as you might predict, because two strands of DNA get held together through pairing, RNA can also form the same kinds of pairing with DNA and form the same kinds of double helices. And what's beautiful about RNA is that because of that, 
you can design a molecule of RNA to pair up with virtually any DNA sequence you'd like simply by using the same sequence of letters in RNA as you have in DNA. So if you want to make an RNA that will pair with the DNA sequence A, G, C, T, C, you would just make an RNA molecule that also has the sequence of letters A, G, C, T, C. And CRISPR, the way that it attaches itself to DNA is using a guide RNA, whereby the RNA pairs with the DNA using those same pairing rules we just discussed. And that makes it incredibly easy to program CRISPR to target any arbitrary stretch of DNA within the entire genome. And before CRISPR, you had to engineer proteins to do that. And that turns out to be incredibly difficult, incredibly low success rate, and also really expensive. And that's why before CRISPR, you had only a small number of companies and highly specialized labs with the expertise and the means to access gene editing. With CRISPR, a basic high school understanding of biology gives you the requisite skills to actually use CRISPR yourself. And I'll just tell you, because I give a fair number of talks to kind of public audiences, that I've had dozens now of high school students either come talk to me or email me who are actually using CRISPR in high school laboratories, um, usually not human cells and simpler cells like bacteria. But the point is that this guide RNA being the thing to program CRISPR with makes it a complete game changer in accessing gene editing technology. That is incredible. And it actually is the, the mark of most major scientific achievements is whether or not it can be practiced in a high school laboratory. If you, Interesting. If you look at uh, a lot of physics experiments in the early 1900s that won Nobel Prizes, those physics experiments can, physics experiments can now be done in a high school laboratory. So I seems, hate to put you on the spot, but I'm curious, do you have a couple of examples? Because I, I want to learn more about that. Yeah, so so you could have the photoelectric effect is one big mm-hmm. one that Einstein won his Nobel. A lot of people think Einstein won his Nobel Prize for relativity or special relativity or general relativity, but he, he got snubbed for all of those things. He he won it for the, the photoelectric effect, and that can very easily be, be practiced in a lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some other ones, geez, I should know this because I, I am, uh, I, I TA and I teach, uh, introductory physics all the time, but, uh, but that's besides the point there, there, there are several, the photoelectric effect, there is, geez, if, if my, if my undergraduate physics professor was, was listening to this right now, he might, he might, uh, rescind my degree, but <laughs> anyway, yeah. we can stay on CRISPR. Let's stay on CRISPR then. Yeah. So the question that I have now is a lot of the things I look in the media, you can find CRISPR being compared to GMOs. And there's a lot of confusion about what, what the difference is. What, what is the difference between GMO? We've been doing GMOs for a long time. Why is it now that CRISPR is this big new thing? A lot of people think that we've been doing it already. So can you explain the, the difference between those, the yeah, that's a very interesting topic. Um, so first of all, you know, GMO, this brings us into thinking probably about plants and agriculture. And um, just to give this a bit of context, so, I mean, CRISPR has quickly been adopted by many of the major players in agriculture. We're talking Syngenta. We're talking DuPont Pioneer. 
Monsanto, you know, many other smaller companies that develop crops, either with um, genetic engineering or even without it, are now interested in using CRISPR to supplement existing breeding technologies. And so it's an interesting discussion point, and maybe even debate, whether CRISPR gene-edited crops are GMOs or not. So let's talk about how GMOs have historically been um, defined. So genetically modified organisms are the product of recombinant DNA technology. Um, often you'll hear terms like gene splicing when we talk about GMOs. And traditionally we're talking about plant products that have um, foreign DNA introduced into the genetic code of the plant, um, often having been delivered by either a bacterium or other uh, methods of delivery, but the end result is that the plant gains new traits because a foreign gene from a different source was introduced into the plant's genome. So, um, for example, BT crops have genes from a bacterium called Bacillus thuringiensis. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but this, um, I believe, confers resistance to a very common plant pathogen. There are GMOs um, for crops, or that actually might be, um, that makes them immune to some insect, uh, to insect, uh, insect pathogen, I believe. Um, there are GMOs that are resistant to um, bacterial pathogens to, uh, ins that are more resistant to herbicides so that you can kind of clear out weeds without touching the plants. Uh, the difference now when we talk about gene-edited crops is we can actually make much smaller tweaks where instead of introducing DNA from a bacterium or another species, we're just going to tweak the DNA that was there to begin with and do that in a way that doesn't leave any lasting scars on the genetic code. So the result of that would be a crop that actually if you took it to a laboratory and asked them, has this been genetically engineered? They could do all the DNA sequencing in the world and never tell you that they have proof that it was generated by a scientist because the kinds of edits you're making are not distinguishable from edits that could happen by random mutation or by traditional breeding. And so the question then is, if it was still made starting with CRISPR tools in the laboratory, should GMO um, describe the process or the product? And that's actually both a kind of a semantics debate, but it's also a debate that matters at the regulatory level because GMOs are subjected to much different kinds of regulation at the U.S. Department of Agriculture than traditional breeding products. And in fact, the USDA decided earlier this year that gene-edited plants if they could have been developed through traditional breeding, will not be regulated the way that genetically modified organisms or GMOs are. And interestingly, Europe recently came down on the exact opposite side, and they will regulate gene-edited crops just like GMOs. So I think there's still some growing pains because this technology is so new on how regulators, and I think soon we'll find out how consumers will react to these new kinds of products. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it comes down to how it's marketed or how it's given, given to the people, right? Because GMOs actually, too, are, are subject to a lot of pseudoscience. A lot of people absolutely mistake the actual effects that GMOs have on you. A, a lot of the things that they 
that we use GMOs for are, are actually quite good, and they allow us to to eat foods that we ordinarily wouldn't be able to eat at different times of the year. They allow us to to grow crops in climates that maybe we ordinarily wouldn't be able to. They allow us to grow crops in areas that ordinarily we wouldn't be able to because of of certain uh, you know predators, and for some reason. GMOs have really been marketed as a as a bad thing. Yeah, and I think terms like frankenfoods or these images of kind of a tomato with a syringe stuck in the side of it as if somehow we're like eating chemicals when we eat GMOs, I think all of those are really unfortunate and misleading and they scare the public. And and I think it's also a challenge because I mean many people are just, you know, you may have taken biology in high school but maybe you haven't thought about it since then. And so GMO and those kinds of images or terms sound scary, but you know there's some interesting studies where they, you know, where people polled members of the public on would you eat GMOs? They say no, I don't want that. Well, what about eating food with DNA in it? No, I don't want that. You know, people actually <laughs> don't know that everything has DNA in it, and yeah. if you, you know, so I think it's just there's a, a gap in the understanding, and that's why it's so critical how GMOs or newer products are marketed and you know how we think about how they're you know how the public will perceive them and it depends a lot on on the way that they're rolled out and I think that's you know I I was a little too young when GMOs came onto the scene but I think from what I've read you know the way that some of those early companies um attempted to improve public understanding you know it didn't wasn't probably done in the way that could have better led to these being accepted. And then also I think it's tough to separate the question of the safety of GMOs from some business practices from these large companies that you know may have some pretty negative attributes, whether it's con- control over seed production or you know various things, you know monoculturing where we're putting all of our resources into a small number of crops at the expense of biodiversity. And they're being increasingly controlled by fewer and fewer large monopolies. You know, that's, I think, something that we can talk about separately as a potential negative. Yes. But somehow that's been that's been kind of rolled up into the same thing with GMOs. And now many people are very afraid of anything that science touches, even though there's really no need to be. And there's no support scientifically for any of the fears on safety associated with GMOs. Yeah, no, yeah, I I completely agree with you, and I, and it's a problem, and it affects everything. I was thinking about this last night. I want to mention two things. First, your example made me think of the dihydrogen monoxide experiment. Have yeah. You, have you heard of this? Well, where, I can imagine where it's going, yeah. Yeah, my, my brother is an EMT, and he told me a story recently of a patient he had who was trying to convince him that uh, there's this chemical being released to everyone in the world and millions of people are dying every year from it and it was dihydrogen monoxide oh no and my brother had to to break it to him that he'd been conned and that that is just you know good old ordinary water but so so you you made me think of that now the the other thing i wanted to mention about crispr because crispr does have a whole array of of ethical issues that people like to bring up when it comes to actually using it on human beings I am all for using it. I should say that. I think that we should, as soon as we're able to do it and do it well, and we might be at that stage right now, we should be using it on humans because we can sit around and and talk ethical questions all day, 
but we really don't know the ethical implications until we start using something. This is true for, for AI as well, AI and machine learning. We can't just sit around and, and talk about if machines are going to take over society and in the process waste valuable efficiency by doing that. We need to start actually putting these things into practice and then we, we change policy when we see how it actually affects the world because we can't be philosophers in, in the real world, unfortunately. I'm going to – I'm actually not sure I would agree with that, Brendan. Um, okay. Yes. Great. I mean I think you know, I think there's a bit of a fallacy in this precautionary principle where like we need to approach everything with waiting until it's proven safe. I, I agree with you in the sense that we can't be too conservative in rolling out new technologies. But I think there are cases where you can't just say let's use it and then see if there are any problems. And I'll give you one example in the world of CRISPR where I think there's actual – it's maybe one of the areas where there's the most danger. Um, it's a technology called gene drives. We talk about it briefly in the book, but truthfully I would have liked to spend a whole chapter on it. But you know there just wasn't the space for it. Um, but this is – and the, the science is a little bit more complicated, but to just simplify it, it's a way of driving traits into wild populations – Using a way, using a, a CRISPR-based tool for accessing super Mendelian inheritance. So Mendel was this this um, monk um, who you know learned some of the early rules of genetics in the 19th century, um, working with pea plants. And you know, usually if your dad has a certain trait, um, you know, half of his children are going to inherit it because of the way that his chromosomes will be shared with your mother's chromosomes. And so you get a natural dilution over many generations because of the natural form of Mendelian inheritance. Gene drives can trick that by basically copying genes into every single chromosome inside of a cell. And so the consequence is you could drive traits into wild populations by releasing a small number of animals that have the gene drive. And through them breeding with animals in the wild, you can very quickly, in theory, convert traits in wild populations. Now, why are researchers going after this? Well, take a disease like malaria. If you could engineer mosquitoes to be resistant to the malaria parasite and now spread that trait into wild populations, like, for example, in, in areas of sub-Saharan Africa where this kills hundreds of thousands of people a year, you know, maybe we could be saving a massive amount of lives. But yeah. I think with gene drives, because you cannot reverse that once it's out in the wild, there's no easy way to recall it. And so if we don't understand to a great level of detail the safety parameters of this kind of technology, once it's out in the world, it's basically irreversible to some extent. And so I think there, you know, there's a higher burden of safety testing than just saying, let's get it out there and see if it works and we can deal with the ethical or safety issues or regulatory issues later. So yeah, I I agree with you when it when it comes to that. That's why I I think that we should be testing these things in the lab, but I don't think that we should be testing them to death in the lab. That's not that's what I'm trying to get at. I think that it's great to to have you know a hundred people trying to to study this and see its implications and see its effects within a laboratory, and with something like biology maybe that's a little easier to do because you you can form these closed systems now i'm not saying that it's easy to do 
But I'm saying when it comes to something like AI where it affects all of society, there's not really a way to test that in the lab. There's not a way to test if AI will, will eventually become a conscious robot and kill everyone, right? So I, th- I think that this it's a good point you brought up, that we should be doing what we can in the laboratory. But I don't think that we should be spending our whole lives in the laboratory. Eventually, we have to use these things. We have to either come to a conclusion, and that conclusion is we can't use them, or we have to actually try to use them. Because I, I don't think that we can spend much... We shouldn't spend all of our time coming up with ethical implications is, is essentially what I'm getting at. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's been it's been interesting. Um, I remember there was a, an op-ed that Steven Pinker, who's a kind of world-famous linguist, and um, I guess I think linguism is, is his main area of expertise, but he's a, a scholar at uh, Harvard, and he wrote an op-ed a couple years ago that was titled, um, I think it was titled Bioethics, Get Out of the Way, now I want to look up exactly what it was titled, but the basic premise was bioethicists need to chill out and let scientists do their science without trying to come up with these overly restrictive policies on, you know, thinking what should or shouldn't we do. And I think, you know, there is the idea that there's a lot of hand-wringing over new technologies and, of course, being aware before we go in certain directions on all the implications is critical and it's really important but not at the expense of, of developing potential cures to diseases because some people are afraid of the kind of, let's say, the um, morality of editing genetic code. And I think that's one of the things that comes up with CRISPR is it sounds very profound to kind of rewrite the DNA of a human being. And I think where maybe we'll take this is when it comes to rewriting the DNA of a future human being because that's really where we have the largest controversy around CRISPR right now is the the prospect of using CRISPR in human embryos to rewrite genetic code at the earliest stage of human development. And there I think there's gonna there's gonna be a major question, I mean, and debate on whether or not we should do this and and kind of the morality of using it to prevent disease, albeit, you know, while while understanding that that could lead to future uses where it's used to introduce certain traits that might not even be disease associated. Right. I, I know you only have a tiny bit of time left, Sam, but I, I, we're going down a direction that I really want to ask you a question about. You're, you're essentially le- getting into designer humans, right? W- whether or not we should sort of design human beings in the embryo or design human beings with this technology to make them more appealing, to make them disease resistant, essentially grow them like we grow crops. Yeah, well, I wouldn't. I no, wouldn't I'm. I'm way, but you, you can word it that way, but that's not how I would word it. But okay. sure. Yeah, I, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm not trying to. Um, yeah. But that that's just sort of how I look at it in my head. And to this, I I I say that insurance companies seem to have it figured out. We insurance companies very loosely figured out. Have it figured out what what is cosmetic, what is necessary, you know. And of course, insurance companies are always going to try to scam you, but but we have a good baseline: what is necessary and what is cosmetic. And I think that we should just use these exact same sort of arguments when we talk about whether or not we can do gene editing on an embryo. Is it necessary? Can we avoid them from having? early onset diabetes, or or I don't even know if that's something CRISPR can fix. Can we avoid them from having sickle cell anemia? Can we avoid them from having 
cancers eventually. And if we can, then I think that it's worth our efforts to try. Now, I don't think that we should be, you know, giving them blonde hair and blue eyes. And I don't think that we should be ensuring that they're going to be six foot one and, and these sorts of things. But, but what do you, what do you think about this whole idea of designing human beings? Well, I'll just, I'd make one comment first that, um, you know, I think again, the language is going to be very interesting with this potential application because in fact, you can already quote unquote design a human being because anyone could now spend $10,000 and conceive a child through in vitro fertilization and use embryo genetic testing to choose an embryo out of a pool of fertilized eggs that has genetic variants that are free of maybe mutations that either parent has. So it's already possible to do genetic testing of embryos and do embryo selection. And in that sense, we've already crossed over into kind of the new world of designer humans. If you consider that making decisions. The only thing that CRISPR could change is now introducing traits or mutations or genetic variants that neither parent already has to start with. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, like I don't have a personal moral opposition to using CRISPR in this way for lowering disease risk or preventing disease. My major hangup, and it's one that I, I, I don't know how to deal with yet, is the kind of access problem which is this will be an elective procedure and it will be expensive and that means that it will only be available to the privileged or people with the wealth to afford it. And, you know, I know many technologies will start being expensive and go down in price. You can look at smartphone technology or computer technology. I mean, all of those things began as kind of elite, very expensive um, low access technologies that now most people have smartphones, most people have internet, have computers. But I think that's my my concern over the rollout of a, a potential future use of CRISPR for for lowering disease risks in embryos is that where is it going to be available and what kinds of additional inequalities could it produce along with the many, many inequalities that we already live with today in our society. Yes, that is a big issue. And that's a big issue in every avenue of, of biomedical ethics, I think. Is, yeah. Is, I was talking to um, Joan Nichols recently on my show, and she is is coming up with ways to bioengineer lungs and, mm-hmm. and transplanting them into pigs. I don't know if you're familiar with her and her work, but and she was talking about the same thing, is eventually this technology is going to be accessible to human beings. And and for the long, in the long haul, maybe it's accessible to everyone, but for a large portion of its lifetime, it will be available to, to, to wealthy people, essentially. And, and it's a problem. But I, I, at the same time, I, I don't think, I don't think that we should allow that to prevent us from, from trying to use it. Because like you said, that it's going to have to be used. And, and, and by using it, we can bring the cost down. We can improve our methods. I mean, hell, if the methods don't work, Right, it's the it's the rich people who are who are uh, the ones that are going to be f- feeling the pain, and and of course I don't want rich people to die, but but just a point. Okay, Sam, I I, I know that you got to get running, so I I'll, I'll I'll let you off the hook. I appreciate you coming on the show. You you taught me a lot. I know very little about this sort of topic, but it's it's very interesting, and and it's something that is very, very much in the news. And I hope to see it win a Nobel Prize or, or some other 
big name prize. I know that that Jennifer Doudna has won prizes for the the work, and I hope that it continues to get recognized. And I hope that it doesn't fall under the curse of pseudoscience as we move forward. And I hope that it can be used to help people across the world, to help everyone. And with that being said, Sam, we're out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Make sure to leave a rating or a review if you enjoyed it. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes.